Hey, Nick. Hey, Teddy. Do you remember Rebecca St. James's Wait For Me song? Oh, God. I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh God, I Forgot About That, the podcast that explores artifacts from turn-of-the-millennium Christian culture. Today, we're talking about Rebecca St. James's song, Wait For Me. So did you actually forget about it or? I actually did. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I actually did. I did not forget about Rebecca St. James as an artist. Okay. I was not personally invested in her music, but I had a younger sister. Uh, and so, you know, Rebecca St. James was on the top of her favorite artists list for a while, uh, along with, you know, sort of all the lady artists of the time, like Zoe Girl and Super Chick. And, yeah. Uh, so I, I remember her as an artist, but this song uh, didn't really have a dominant place in my memory. Okay, interesting. And that'll, I think that's actually potentially purposeful and we'll mm. talk about why. So who was Rebecca St. James? So that is actually her professional name. I didn't know that. Yeah, her legal name now is Rebecca Fink because she, spoiler, got married, which is important. <laughs> um, so she got married uh, and is now Rebecca Fink, but still goes by Rebecca, Rebecca St. James because that's just what everybody knew her as and what she started her, her career as. Mm. So she is an Australian Christian pop rock singer. Um, she began performing in Australia in the late 1980s and released her first full length studio album in 91. The 90s is when she kind of rose to fame. So she um, won a Grammy Award in 1999 for uh, the best rock gospel album and then later for a Christmas album. So there is a chance that you have hummed along, <laughs> sung along to some um, Rebecca St. James Christmas throughout your, your Christian childhood. I, she definitely, again, in my memory, like I don't remember her being around that early. Yeah, yeah. And like I said to you right before the podcast started, she did the majority of her music, um, the ones that we would have been familiar with throughout all of her 20s. Mm. So she was actually around through like all of the 90s um, and then into obviously 2000s and is still doing things. She has an active TikTok <laughs> that I binge scrolled through the other day. In 2000, she released what's probably her biggest album, and that's Transform. And it's probably the one that if you were to like have a song come on that you recognize, it's probably the one that you would you would recognize. And on Transform was the song Wait For Me. Wait For Me is important to both sort of the church and kind of the culture at large. It was one of the very first songs um, that was ever like really popularized um, songs about sexual purity. This was kind of a new thing in mainstream Christian culture and music. It was something that obviously we talked about in the church, but not something you would hear, you know, on kind of like hitless Christian radio. There was a Christian hip hop artist who had a song about porn. It okay. was called <laughs> Okay. It was called uh, Paper Ladies and it was from the album um Rugged Witness. Later there were like a couple other songs here or there. My favorite is Petty D's uh title No Wed No Bed. 
<laughs> Interestingly, many of these songs um, either came out, you know, sort of prior to James, Rebecca St. James or like within a few years after. But hers was really the only one that was picked up and pop- heavily popularized and awarded and recognized. Eddie, are you are you trying to imply that chastity is a difficult marketing sell? I might be. Yeah, yeah. I might be. And I might be suggesting that being young and white and pretty Mm. and thin and also a virgin (laughs) um, might help sell said said message. So, you know, just kind of throwing it out there. It is from my research, from what I understand, um, the majority of the songs that did address sexual purity broadly and did not receive the recognition St. James did were primarily by men and men of color, interestingly. Mm. So and they were primarily in the hip hop genre. So they kind of went there um, with topics that maybe we weren't, you know, doing in mainstream Christian culture. Probably what's unique then about Rebecca St. James, in addition, to bringing this issue into a song, a highly popular song, is that it is like sickingly earnest. Oh, so, so earnest, like, yeah. It's like the kind of dessert, you know, you bite into and you just immediately know within one to two bites, it's going to be way too sugary, yeah. you know? Um, it's so earnest. So she was 22. She is, you know, writing this song about sexual purity, but it's told from her own personal perspective as a woman who was also sing- who is currently single at the time and saving herself for marriage. So we'll, we'll, there's more on that later. But basically, she's not only singing about abstinence she's speaking about she's singing about her own sexual abstinence and she's singing for this kind of like projected um future guy who she's going to marry with the intent that like probably someday she's going to again give this song to him and sing it at her wedding you know it became this kind of future well evolving i guess is the better word evolving christian romance for godly women to consume yeah it's romantic yeah it, yeah. yeah, in a way. Yeah. Uh, I like your use of like giving him this song as like a piece of it. It reminded me you said that and it unlocked a weird memory for me. Uh, a f- friend of mine uh, when I was at Bible college was keeping like a journal that she was writing to her future husband. Oh, so common. And yeah. that she was only like she wouldn't tell anybody and it wasn't a place for all of her thoughts just she was reserving for him and it like it came off as like a weird sex journal but i'm not sure that's necessarily how she meant it or how it was supposed to be but that's sort i don't of think that. it was i feel like i i i had a lot of friends do that mm-hmm. journal and it was actually like the level of boring that it was <laughs> would probably be both surprising <laughs> would be a surprising and upsetting. Um, and, and, you know, I, I remember it, it, I'm glad you bring this up because the journal to your husband thing is we say it in jest, but it was actually sort of part of mm. a staple part of like purity culture for girls of the time. There's a lot I look back on in my past in the church and sort of cringe of like, Oh my God, was I really that person? <laughs> But then I look back and remember that I was never able to actually maintain said journal to my future husband. And I kind of love that about me and for me. (laughs) So I just want to throw that out there that I started multiple journals and I was like, this is I'm not into this. I'm not writing to some guy. So this 
<laughs> this, <laughs> this is a culture, right? That we would probably call me and you people who have left the church, maybe even some people in the secular world. I'm not sure. We would probably call this broadly purity culture. So that's a phrase we're going to use a lot. When I say that, like what comes to your mind or how would you sort of loosely define or describe purity culture to an innocent listener who doesn't know what we're talking about? Oh, dear poor listener. I'm so <laughs> sorry to take the world you know without purity culture and add this to your world of things that you know about. But unfortunately, the task is mine. What comes to my mind when you say purity culture versus like how I would define it in like a very intentional sense are kind of two different things. Okay. Uh, what comes to mind when, when you say purity culture is this sort of interlocking set of systems that are bent on keeping me away from girls. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, You're not wrong. <laughs> keeping, me, keeping me away from any sex or enjoyment of who I am, any security in myself. Yeah, I was actually going to say, let's expand this for our queer audience and say that they kind of just wanted to keep you away from everybody. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. Mean, boys weren't on the table either. No, no, no. Yeah, boys were not on the table either. It, I mean, <laughs> again, taking this kind of to a personal level, like everything was a, a, a chance for being sexually tempted. Before, before I delve into that a little farther, like the actual way I would describe purity culture is it was a cultural fascination with the idea of virginity and chastity that was highly gendered. It's a great depth. It didn't mean it was not the same goal on both sides, but the conversations between uh, leadership and cultural artifacts and women and girls was very different than what men and boys received. Mm. So that's going to be kind of a key feature of any time we talk about a purity culture artifact is the differences between uh, the way women and girls and men and boys uh, experience this. So with my experience, uh, purity culture sort of did two things. It boiled me and all of my other male friends down to our sex drives. Mm. I remember being very like, I mean, we you know, awkward teenagers, awkward, yeah. let's be honest, tweens. Oh, yeah. And, and younger in some circumstances. But like we were awkward adolescents. So obviously our sex drives were like peak and crazy and weird and uncomfortable. Uh, but every conversation sort of put this spotlight on this is a part of you that you can't get rid of. But it's also vile and disgusting and it's something that's going to make you either a predator or a protector. And that's sort and of you're going to save it for the person who you love most in the entire world. Yes. Thank you so much for putting that nice, neat little bow on it. It's like I had to constantly be vigilant so that I didn't become a predator and anything mm -hmm. I did could make me a predator. Mm -hmm. But it was my job to be a protector. And then when I got married, I was supposed to unleash this thing upon the person that I was in love with who had to be a woman because I was a boy, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and the other thing I think that it did was strain all of my friendships with men and women. Mm, okay. You could not have, I could not have a, an easy relationship with my female friends because, oh, you know, hey, you enjoyed being around them. Does that mean they arouse you? 
And if you got to arouse you, then that means you need to back off a little bit. And I'm sure you'll talk a little more about this as, as experiencing this as a woman, but like they were constantly being vigilant about friendship with boys going too far. Mm. You know, I have experienced so many friendship breakups where like little Nick was a little too earnest or (laughs) little Nick was like, God, I got along better with, with girls and women when I was younger. I still do. It's just a more comfortable environment. Even my friendships with men and other boys were strained because there was this weird pull to have brotherly love, but also no homo. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I use that very crass, outdated phrase for a reason, because that's that sort of knee jerk reaction that right. like you're supposed to have deep, rich, loving friendships, but they can't be too deep or too rich or too loving or else what differentiates you from those people? Yeah, it seems like, and you and I have talked about, we, we have spent years now talking about the gender differences in the church, right? And how one thing I keep going back to hearing your experiences throughout the years is how isolating in some ways it feels like the male Christian male experience mm. must have been. Because on one hand, you're told you can't have any kind of emotional intimacy with a woman who's not going to be your wife. Yeah, that's right? emotionally cheating. Or emotionally right, being emotionally unfaithful cheating. to your future wife. Right. Or a sort of like slippery slope, right. you know. But then you're also told that, you know, kind of deep emotional intimacy with other men is suspect. Mm-hmm. So who in the world do you ha- end up having freaking emotional intimacy with? I mean, no one, right? I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> who? <laughs> like yeah. you wait for your wife, I guess. Right. And then. You can't be too uh, intimate with her or vulnerable with her because it's your job to be leader and head and strong. And like you have to then fill another role. I don't want to make allotments or or two hyperbolic defenses, but I know everyone because I know everyone experiences this differently. But when you are told these things on a subliminal and explicit message, from so many sources for so many years, it becomes mm. very hard to counteract them, even if you disagree with them as a principle, right? Like yeah. even if you wouldn't sign on the dotted line to this is how men and women should interact. If you live in the culture that is steeped with this perspective, you can't avoid it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you did a really good job, I think, showing how broad in some way, well, you, you did a few good things here. I mean, you showed how broad purity culture is. You emphasize that it has gendered, you know, kind of um, divides. And also that it was an era, I think, that had a lot of rules. You know, it was sort of um, hyper fixated on rules surrounding manhood, womanhood, and what those two things meant when joined together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for, for our general audience, it's probably just good to say that when we are talking about purity culture, we are primarily referring to what is now recognized as a kind of subculture of evangelical Christianity that peaked right when we were kids Mm -hmm. in the nineties and then kind of persisted through the two thousands. We start to see increased um, critique of it, I think, in like 2010 and onward. Um, And now I think, well, we can get into where we're at with purity culture now. But 
So when we talk about purity culture, we are talking about this kind of subculture um, within the church that had a particular language and set of texts and set of rules and rhetoric all pertaining to gender and sexuality. Right. And the two are, are completely entangled, you know, what it means to be men and women and then what it means to, to have sex. Right. There is there is a, a, a distinct like one of the features of purity culture rhetoric is that there's a distinct lack of nuance between gender and sexuality. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that was for me getting involved in gender studies uh, was one of the more difficult things to disentangle in my mind. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what's interesting, though, is that secular culture was and I notice we keep using the phrase secular culture. So when I mean secular, I mean beyond the church, like the culture at large. Yeah. Secular culture was not divorced, entirely divorced from this either. So this was the same era where we see like um, people like Jessica Simpson publicly discussing her virginity, celebrities like Britney Spears, who are quite young at the time, you know, constantly being asked on interviews if they're virgins and if they plan to wait till marriage. Um, TV shows like Seventh Heaven. That was one of those like weird stories that was both mainstream, but also accepted by Christians. Talked a lot about virginity. Mm -hmm. um, there was just a lot too. I, I think the era produced a lot of intense judgment towards women and their choices about sexuality. So we have the kind of like Monica Lewinsky era, right? Where like we look back now and we're like, whoa, we effed that one up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's just this kind of cultural fixation, I think, on women's sexuality in general. So as always, you know, the church, the church's what the church is dealing with does not exist in some kind of vacuum. Like, I think we can kind of expand this. It's mm -hmm. also the era at the height of, of um, abstinence only education. Mm -hmm. What's going on with the church is kind of coinciding with this uptick um, in the culture at large, although perhaps maybe in, in slightly tamer ways. Rebecca St. James kind of brilliantly capitalizes, if I might use that word, you know, on that culture. And wait for me becomes an anthem for girls and women who aspire to wait for marriage, who were waiting for their, you know, she would even use this phrase. I've seen her use this phrase, you know, wait for their Prince Charming. Yeah. And that I think highlights two of the like dominant features. And please correct me if I'm wrong as the, the you know, masculine presence and whatever that means in this <laughs> podcast. But um it seems like that wait for me highlights two important features of the of purity culture for women, which is the nominal obsession and focus on purity, cleanliness, uh, virginity, chastity, that idea of abstinence and the perspective of like destiny. The Prince Charming narrative is like there is a specific person who's going to save you from this vacuum of sex mm -hmm. and and emotional connection and whatever and that specific person is the only person who deserves or gets your sexuality yeah totally i, th I think this is like this was really packaged as like highly biblical hi this highly like kind of complex christian idea but it's it's disney mm -hmm. <laughs> we're being like you know if i'm being kind of crude it's it's disney it's it's wrapped up in this 
it's all about woman as needing of protection, protector coming and and rescuing her and the two riding off into the distance. I, you know, and the protector cannot come too quickly. And it, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> of course, of course. It's just so in some ways, it's so highly simplistic, even though it has caused so many complications, so many complications. <laughs> So many complications. So why don't we actually look at the lyrics? Sure. Um, So I have sent them to you. And now you actually said that you didn't really remember this song and you listened to it, what, this week? Yes, I listened to it this week um, a couple times. You're welcome. So um, (laughs) I believe what I said to you after I listened to it the first time was this is the most 90s thing that's ever happened to me in the year of our Lord 2022. Yeah. And actually, I was going to talk about that. So what do you mean when you say it's the most 90s thing to happen to you? Like, What about it is is 90s? The song has that whimsical 90s feel for like these singer songwriter women, right? Like there's a very specific Mm -hmm. vibe in the 90s for solo female artists. Like obviously, you know, we can make the easy port over to Amy Grant, but I even get like a less edgy Alanis Morissette vibe, Mm -hmm. right? Like if Alanis Morissette suddenly like found Jesus, I feel like we might get something like Rebecca (laughs) St. James. She suddenly found Jesus. Yes, that is highly possible. That is highly possible. But it's got that whimsy. It's, uh, you know, her pronunciations on things, the repetitions. Like this isn't a very lyrically complicated song no it's not it's highly repetitive i mean it's nothing like jesus freak it's pretty simple it's pretty short pretty repetitive funny i saw an interview with her um from the 90s where she said she always knew she wanted to write a song about sexual purity i don't buy that but whatever really always she always knew um and that she knew she had to work in the word darling it is a distinct feature to be honest Aside from the word wait, it probably is the most repeated word. It is. Yes. So why don't you read, darling? Why don't you read um, first stanza? Darling, did you know that I dream about you? Waiting for the look in your eyes when we meet for the first time. Darling, did you know that I pray about you? Praying that you will hold on, keep your loving eyes only for me. Perfect. That was intimate. Okay. So why don't you tell me your reaction to this stanza? The first thing that strikes me about this. Also, can I just say really fast that for my entire childhood, because of her Australian accent, I thought she was saying, keep your loving arms holy for me, which would also work. I mean, it would work. And she probably should have consulted with me because I feel like, you know, that could have that would have been great. But okay, so go on. This was like new to me. I like double checked the lyrics. I was like loving eyes. What? I thought it was holy arm. No. Right. Well, that that actually is a great like uh, example of what I I was thinking about uh, with this is none of this is sexual. No, this is a very chaste stanza. It's not talking about saving yourself for marriage in any explicit terms. Like now, like waiting for someone has a specific meaning. 
Mm-hmm. But she wants to see his eyes when they meet for the first time. She's not talking about being undressed or being in any sort of state of ecstasy. And mm-hmm. your uh, lyrical misunderstanding at the end, keep your loving, what does you say, arms holy for me? Yeah. Right, yeah that's arms. at least an indication of touch. Yeah, yeah. Loving yeah. eyes only for me is, is separate. From that right like I'm supposed to walk around blindfolded until I meet you no like you're obviously <laughs> saying that there's some level of this purity this chastity that's about exclusivity with an mm. unknown person yes yes I will add that this song oh it's the year 2000 and that is about two years after Joshua Harris's I kiss dating goodbye that um, was going to be one of my questions later so I'm glad you answered that <laughs> Which was so huge. And he later teamed up with Rebecca St. James and they did some stuff together. Um, A good thing to remember about I Kiss Dating Goodbye and what kind of became a feature of the more extreme versions of purity culture was that it was not actually just sex Mm -hmm. that you were saving, right? For your for your future partner. Mm -hmm. Sorry, they would not have used that liberal word. They would have said your spouse. So Joshua Harris's, you know, whole kind of point was that it's not just the physical act of sex that's intimate, but also dating in and of itself Mm -hmm. is is intimate. You know, having deep conversations with someone is is intimate. And that there's a bunch of things that you need to sort of save for your future spouse and that we need to really guard ourselves even in the dating process. It's been a while, to be fair, since I have read this, Mm -hmm. but he's pretty much proposing like a courtship model, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. It is a courtship model. The idea was very much build a relationship past a certain point with only one person. Um, if okay. I can use perhaps the most cliched uh, purity culture uh, sermon device. Okay, <laughs> they would put us all in this room. And I, I vividly, vividly remember sitting in at least a dozen different sermons in a dozen different contexts where they did this exact same thing. Is this the bubble gum? No, I like the bubble gum one, but this is the duct <laughs> okay. tape one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Explain. Uh, they, the pastor would say, you need to save yourself for this destined spouse. Uh, and they'd say, you are like this piece of duct tape. And they'd hold, like, rip off a piece of duct tape and they'd stick it to the side of a cardboard box or a piece of cardboard. And they'd say, see, when you are in a relationship with someone, when you date someone, you're stuck to them. But then if God. you break up and then they'd rip the piece of duct tape away, And obviously it's cardboard and duct tape. So some of the cardboard or a lot of the cardboard would fall off and get stuck to the duct tape. And they'd say, so see what happens? You take some of that person with you. And then Mm. when you try to have another relationship and they try to re-stick the duct tape on another piece of cardboard, it wouldn't stick as well. Right. And they would do this over and over and say, see, eventually you'll lose your stickiness, which has been me. Huh? (laughs) What does that even mean? Well, yeah, what does that mean? What are you like? What is the resource in your body, in your soul that is used up? Right. I mean, I genuinely had friends and I remember thinking that this wasn't weird, but like thinking that people only had a certain number of orgasms in their body mm. because of this language. 
Yeah, that's uh, the bubblegum one is a smidgen more crass, but very same concept, you know, is that they you they show you this like beautiful piece of of bubblegum. And then they're like, suppose, you know, maybe even the lady would like I'm picturing there's a specific woman I'm picturing who was like one of those famous abstinence only educators who was like the equivalent almost to the guy in Mean Girls who says if you have sex, you will die. I can't remember (laughs) her name. Like she literally says, like, you better be prepared, you know, for fatalities if you have sex. But anyway, um, you know, she would take the piece of gobble gum, chew it for a few seconds and then take it out and say, well, who wants this now? Right. So Mm -hmm. there was this idea that like you were used up or that you had some you were no longer desirable or whatever. So there are so many metaphors that were used. That one's even like our two examples that we picked are so gendered. Yeah. As a woman, you will be used up and no longer desirable for your purpose, which is to be consumed. And then as a man, as a man, you are a tool (laughs) which will eventually lose its efficacy. Yeah. Yeah. And you're still useful longer than I am. Yep. I mean, you know, like I've used right pieces of stale duct tape and they can still do the job for a while, but who wants to use a piece of gum? Like no one wants that. So Anyway, I say all that to say that Rebecca St. James didn't like come out with this song and like there was no one else saying this. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some people were like some people like Joshua Harris, probably being the biggest, as well as the bride wore white in 1999, were proposing a really radical view of sexuality and romance that did not just advocate for you save sexual intercourse for your honeymoon, but rather you save like this entire relationship model right for for marriage and it was so extreme in fact for those who don't know that joshua harris has well i was going to say dial back that would be that's not even accurate he has completely pretty much retracted Mm -hmm. you know what he said and said like this kind of destroys marriages it makes people jump into marriages too quickly the courtship model doesn't build intimacy you know sorry (laughs) also i'm not publishing this book anymore so props to him yeah i was going to say he had the publisher pull the book he also did a documentary interviewing people who were harmed by thinking and stuff like that so it's a really fascinating like journey of deconstruction uh in and of itself yeah and really um i don't know one i I feel like it was a it was a experience of deconstruction that also had a lot of integrity Mm -hmm. you know the fact that he like pulled everything and going back then to your thoughts in that there really wasn't anything explicitly about sex in this first pair in this first stanza. I think that's because it's so much even it's about sex, but it's also about all everything else. It's about love and romance and intimacy and all those things. And what she feels like she's describing here is very much a sort of fairy tale, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So then like she goes into the chorus, which is what uh, the chorus is. I'm waiting for praying for you, darling. Wait for me too. Wait for me as I wait for you. I am waiting for, praying for you, darling. Wait for me to, wait for me as I wait for you, darling. Wait. A lot of waiting. So that last (laughs) sentence, that last line, darling, wait, wait, darling, darling, wait, 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 wait. You know, those um, exercises sometimes they would do with us in school where it was like, if you change the um, enunciation of a word in a sentence, it can change like the whole sentence, like, darling, wait, <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> darling, wait, <laughs> you know, it's like, there's so many ways this can be read. It can almost become kind of cryptic. So this whole stanza then, you know, w- what do you make of it? I think this really emphasizes the ambiguity of what 
waiting for someone means. Mm. Wait for me while I wait for you. Okay, no one's taking action then? Yeah. Like what are, what are you waiting for? What is that, as she says in the first stanza, what is that first time you meet? look like are we all of a sudden in like fiddler on the roof where we're begging the matchmaker to come along like <laughs> what's um what, what's going on how does i mean this... in some families maybe some... <laughs> actually Listen, i knew some i knew some families yeah, me who too. like the meeting to the wedding day was a very short period of time yep. <laughs> so yeah and this is something uh, when i was at when i was at bible college there was a teacher who taught marriage and the family course which is a whole thing but it was a required course for everyone to take and one thing that he advocated that got him in so much trouble with all the students was he Mm. advocated what students derogatorily called as casual dating what does that mean it literally means not sex nope it literally means going to the coffee shop with people of the opposite gender and getting a chance to have long discussions mm-hmm. with them. Like it literally just meant like going and talking to each other, being friends, having friends of both genders, you know, and again, it was explicitly both genders, you know, because his argument, and this is sort of what comes to mind with this chorus, how else are you going to know you want to spend time with somebody? For the length of a marriage seems reasonable to me yeah <laughs> no I, it makes total sense and i remember that i remember in the church when i was a kid purity culture was widely accepted but then within purity culture broadly there were divisions mm-hmm. um and one of those was the division of you know whether or not we quote kind of date around in the sense of and i'm being really mild here like you said this is like going out to dinner right with someone and getting to know them and seeing if you might be interested mm-hmm. as opposed to, I'm not even entirely sure I understand how courtship entirely unfolds, but there were definitely families in my church where it was like the man went to the family and said, I have the hope and intent of marrying your daughter and kind of want to date for the purpose of marriage. Right. Yeah. So I'm not sure what happened before all of that always was vague to me, <laughs> you know, what happened before that, but it was definitely more clearly defined, definitely more intentional. And anything that wasn't as clearly defined and intentional was sort of seen as like loose or not serious. You know, yeah. really what happens before that is, is if you get a boner during worship, when you see her raising <laughs> her hands, I, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm being I'm being facetious. But no, like what happens before that is like, I see you, you look pretty. I ask your current owners, I'm a good I may family. have. Yeah. Possession of you in the future. Yeah. I mean, and I knew couples my age, our age, they would not be in the same room alone together. Oh, yeah. All their dates were family time with one of their families or their like and they weren't dates. They were just like family dinner. They were. Oh, hey, the whole family is going on a trip to see a movie or to go hiking or something. You may come so long as you don't come right right (laughs) we have to apologize in advance this topic is just so ripe for so many jokes so yeah yeah um but yeah absolutely and i i even remember you know as a kid and teenager like having a really hard time with this model because i would think about it in relation to my deep friendships and Mm. i would think to myself i'm not best my best friends in the world are people who I have had hours of one-on-one time with. 
apart from my family, apart from the church, you know, and I would think, how in the world am I supposed to have a relationship that's supposed to be even more intimate than those with all this surveillance? You know, that didn't make sense mm-hmm. to me. So I never bought in on that level. I definitely bought into sexual purity, but the courtship model was extreme. So I think you're so right that that is evident here. I would also say that I think something that's kind of brilliant about Rebecca St. James's song and that we see really evident in the second stanza is how personalized the message is, right? Yeah. Because it's not just wait, wait to have sex before marriage. It's wait for me, you know? So she does this thing where she creates a, a romance narrative. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume primarily for women, you know, to consume where now she has set up this hypothetical scenario where it's like, she is talking to the distant husband, the distant father of her children, whatever, <laughs> and saying, wait for me, I'll wait for you. You wait for me. You know, it's not just about sex before marriage. It's about her person waiting for her, which people ate that up, Mm -hmm. you know? Okay. So what about the last sentence? Like I said, this is kind of short. So our last stanza, darling, did you know I dream about life together? Knowing it will be forever. I'll be yours and you'll be mine. And darling, when I say till death do us part, I'll mean it with all my heart. Now and always faithful to you. Now I know you may have made mistakes, but there's forgiveness and a second chance. And then she dips into the wait for me, darling, wait for me, wait for me until the song fades. Okay, so it's a short song. Final thoughts on this stanza. I actually feel like I have the most thoughts about this stanza. The first is part and heart. That rhyme is so upsetting. Um. Because there's like no other rhymes in like the entire song except for two and you. No. What about, um, oh, I guess eyes and time don't really rhyme. Okay. Eyes and yeah, I, I right. remind, uh, yeah. rhyme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like, I mean, what's your, what's your beef with a nice little simple, honest rhyme? I, uh, mean. I got a lot of problems with rhyming that go far <laughs> beyond this, but it just felt really like, it's a very harsh rhyme. Everything else mm-hmm. is approximate. Everything sort of flows that she's got. Her lines are all in jammed, but this feels like a really hard stop. So just that's just on a technical aesthetic level. I know. Yeah. But okay. sure. there's this like connection to longing for the togetherness beyond the self. Like there's no satisfaction with the individual here. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'm projecting a little too much because I know that little Nick was not happy being alone. Uh, right. And and adult Nick is codependent as <laughs> AF, as the youngins say. Um, but like, there's none of that, you know, <laughs> that till death do us part. I mean it. Oh, again, changing the changing the inflection sounds very threatening. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if a man saying, if a guy, if a man, if a guy saying this to me when I was a teenager, I probably would have been a little freaked out. Actually, like, oh my god, you know, I mean, God sakes, calm down. Yeah, and then that weird pivot at the end. I was just gonna say that's the thing that stuck out to me most because, again, as a guy, that's the kind of messaging purity culture gave me. Now I know you may have made mistakes, but Mm -hmm. there's forgiveness and a second chance. First of all, again, on a syntactical level, on a structural lever, <laughs> level, she doesn't have the forgiveness. It's not hers. It just forgiveness yeah. exists. 
Right. It does exist. Yeah. To be fair, she mentions a little bit in the book, like, hey, if you've slept with a guy, pray a lot, you can kind of like reclaim your virginity or something. Right. But but in this song, in this song, the, the mistake is directed at the dreamed of future husband. Right. Rather than the dreamer. Right. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's a lot of the that that coincides with a lot of the purity culture messaging that that we got as guys, which was like, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to look at porn or you're going to, you know, make out with a girl too much. You're going to sleep with somebody or yada, yada. Maybe you like hanging out with one of your guy friends a little too much, but that's okay. Eventually <laughs> you'll meet the girl who's been praying for you. And it'll change. And everything. it'll change it all, but you'll be as straight as you possibly can when you meet this woman. Yeah. And I would say, you know, you bring up a good point in that in discourses among young women in purity culture of the time, the predominant conversation was like, what do you do? Well, here is this dilemma, girls. Like, what do you do if the guy has slept with someone else? Right. Um, never really acknowledging the like elephant in the room that is like, well, who is he sleeping with? You know, there's obviously then a bunch of women who have also, you know, already had sex and are now like really conflicted by this message. That's a bit heteronormative. I guess they could also have been sleeping with men. But I'm I'm anticipating that in this culture, there was a lot of like untalked about sex between, you know, unmarried men. It, it, it right? almost was it was almost entirely all subtextual. Because yeah. it was on some level unthinkably unacceptable being being right. queer, having same sex relationships, right. uh, being nonconformist in uh, being gender nonconforming is what I meant to say. Yeah. So within that context, then the conversation primarily was women like you're going to have to be prepared to make peace with the fact. Right. Or like summon up the forgiveness that Christ has given you for things, you know, for your man mm -hmm. who may have had sex. That was a conversation we heard repeatedly. And I remember even there being these like real intimate conversations among girls that was like, would this even be a deal breaker? Is it okay to be a deal breaker? Would Christ be all right with it being a deal breaker? Like that was just a conversation that was always happening. Right. Um, I want to, I think maybe transition to the music video. Okay. Because and I probably should have mentioned that before that similar to other artifacts we're doing from this uh, culture, like Jesus Freak, this song had it was the song, but then it also had a book. It had a study guide, it had a journal and it had a music video. If you're all right with maybe taking a second to watch that, we'll do that and then we'll talk about it. Hey, wait for us, please. Please wait. Okay, so thoughts. I promise that I'm going to describe and treat this as it is and report it as what happened. I promise I'm not going out of my way for sexual innuendo and jokes. Okay, good disclaimer. Yeah. yeah, we're not doing any kind of like liberal stretching here. No, and I mean, I'll make it clear when I reach for the joke, <laughs> but okay, like, okay. I'm sincere when I say like, there is so much more sexual coding in the music video than there is in the song proper. Okay, example. I think I, I have an idea of what you're talking about. The but. first thing that I'll say is the majority of, like on a descriptive level, the majority yes. of the music video takes place in the backseat of a car. That's correct. Someone is driving her, which is weird. She's sitting in the backseat of the car 
sort of like <laughs> wistfully looking out the window and then making very intense and suggestive eye contact with the camera. Who is driving her? Who's driving? It's so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> I mean, if this is the courtship model, it's probably her parents. <laughs> right. There is an interesting like level of like, she's not driving the car. She's been, like, yeah. I mean, it's if you asked Rebecca, it's probably something like the Lord is my pilot. Oh, He's right. the one driving me. Like, it's probably something like that. Or yeah. it wasn't thought of like that's genuinely one of the two things it is. But like on a coded level, like she's not in control of this. She's just waiting to arrive at the place where she's going to meet the darling. We mentioned this in passing, but, you know, the very concept of waiting feels passive. And she is very passive throughout the whole music video. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a kind of, you know, quiet state of the Lord is bringing me something mm -hmm. and my kind of task in that process is to hang tight, mm -hmm. which sounds boring as hell. And that goes back to the gendered nature of purity culture, right? As the woman, your role in the relationship is to wait, is to be passive for the prince, the knight in shining armor, the, the man to rescue you or protect you. You know, right. and at any point when you take action, that action is uh, bolstering the man, right? Like, I'm praying mm -hmm. for you to be able to not make a mistake. And to find me. And to find me. Yeah. Yeah. Forget, like, setting road flares or calling for help or, <laughs> you know, going and looking right. for your own damn self. Like, it's just, I'm going to wait here. Like, right. It's very, very Snow White. It really is. I'm just going to yeah. lay here, hands crossed, and wait to yep. be kissed. Yet again, fairy. there's so much fairy tale kind of imagery, ideology here. I was joking with you that, you know, the very first time that I saw um, Sex in the City, interestingly, came out around the same era. So an example of yet another kind of like cultural text that was probably pushing back mm. against what was going on in mainstream culture. I was in love with it and I wasn't in love with it necessarily because they were having a bunch of sex, but I was in love with the fact that there were these like single career women. And I realize it's laden with problems now with our 2022 20, mm -hmm. glasses on, but you know, these kind of like single career women who had their own apartments and managed their own lives and like came and went as they pleased and didn't need any, you know, didn't really, they were looking for people, but they didn't really need them. There was something so desirable to me about that mode of, of femininity um, on the most basic level. And it was, it came up in other movies too, of like the kind of single independent single woman. And I think that that was, I mean, it's what I grew into ultimately, um, you know, still as a single woman in my thirties, but I think it was partly kind of crafted in, in contrast to what I was seeing in purity culture, which did feel very passive. I joked boring, but it, it boring, you know, mm -hmm. like not much is actually happening to you. And in the music video, not much is happening to her. But the guy is there's a guy in it who's doing stuff. What is he doing? <laughs> For about the first two thirds of the music video, we are getting the perspective switching between uh, Rebecca St. James waiting in the backseat of this car and singing about praying for and waiting for this person. And then we get the male darling character who's sitting in this castle, 
what is this room? It's very ornate. Like a real old school. Yeah. yeah like a very yeah. old school library feel. He's sitting at a desk yeah. and he has this like literal treasure chest that fits on his yeah. desk that he opens up and he starts sifting through the items inside. That's very strange items inside. Right? Like they're like what photographs? It's like a kind of there's like a little music thing, yeah. like a music box. There's like a, yeah. a like a music box or like a little like music box ballerina type thing. There's a necklace with a heart on it. There's yeah. a letter and a map. I mean, I think the box is it's her. You know, the box is like all the things that make her her. So her childhood, her adulthood, the things that are special to her. It gives me a little bit of a vibe too of like the hope chest yeah. concept, you know. I think the idea is that, like, you know, he has the treasure that is her hmm. or her heart. Right. Okay, so maybe I'm overthinking this, but how does this gentleman acquire <laughs> such an artifact if she's not giving herself away? But the first thing we see of him is he's rummaging through her hope chest. Again, I'm not trying for these things. Like, right. <laughs> what what does that mean? Right. Because within the within the narrative that is purity culture, it would make more sense for them to be like looking through that together post-marriage. Right. Right. Yeah. Not like him sitting around, by the way, he's like by like a stream. It's all very like Prince Charming. Yeah. Like Uh, so. So kind of the way that I read his journey is that he goes from this like dark office area. Then he like follows some sort of map to like different things that are drawn on the the letter or the map whatever the papers are that he's reading mm-hmm. and that leads him to this garden where there's the different things that like there's the fish that are drawn and there's a lamp by the way all the images drawn on that paper are so phallic <laughs> the fish are stretched out and slightly curved there's just like this <laughs> lamp post that like they're so phallic <clears throat> that lead her to lead him to her garden where he finds her like Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not trying for the sexual innuendo. Yeah. Maybe she was. They made it so easy. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if she it's funnier if she didn't, but it's it's funnier yeah. if she didn't, but there is a level on which, like, if we're gonna give her like a little more credit as an artist, like, okay, there's something going on. It's mixed, it's very confused, but at least it's like, okay, if he is looking for my heart, it will lead him to my garden. Like there's that kind of thing. It's it's really gross. I'm like making a face like garden. (laughs) (laughs) But like, yeah, but by the end of the song and this is that last like third of the music video is they're both in this park or garden with a gazebo and a little uh, lake and they find each other. and, And I forget at this point, I know it was like 30 seconds ago, but like do they embrace at the end? Is there some? Yeah, yeah. 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 So said car didn't crash. So that's good. It got her to her destination. Right. <laughs> Again, it feels a little bit like a kind of modern Christian fairy tale. Mm. The imagery is all vibes with that, I think. Very fanciful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think there's butterflies at one point, like because it's a 90s music video targeted at girls is it ever 90s her um denim jacket with the skirt i was just like oh my goodness oh yeah and the bad lip syncing 
And yeah, oh, the lip syncing. Oh, half the music video is out of focus. That's the other thing. Yeah, very. But then again, going back to like kind of whimsical and dreamy, mm. I felt like that contributed yeah, to that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's like, yeah. like that's their transition most of the time is like things coming into focus from very blurry. It's very interesting on that level of like there is this culmination that comes from waiting and seeking. Both very undefined, by the way. What, what waiting and seeking, whatever. What does this even mean? I don't even know, really. He's waiting for her because he sits around in the in the garden <laughs> park area and just kind of waits for her. And she's yeah. waiting for him, but she's also in a car going someplace. So there is some right. level of forward motion on her part and then initiative to get out of the office into the park on his part. The, the roles aren't defined. There's no, and you know, it's a music video, not an instructional video. And I get that. But that is indicative of this whole narrative of like, what are you supposed to be doing? Like you said before, like you're supposed to court and you're supposed to date with the intention of marriage was a phrase that that my friends and I used. Like, mm-hmm, yeah, like, cause, oh, we didn't want to court. That's a little too extreme, even though that's what most of us that did that did. Um, mm-hmm. like what does it mean how do you arrive at that point if you can't have the friendship thing but again it's all a little unclear it is yeah and on one hand you're right I mean the music video isn't like a how-to guide but at the same time this was I mean she would have classified herself in the purity sort of movement mm-hmm. you know the song and then it's corresponding you know all of the, the corresponding texts associated with it were meant to inspire and empower people to embrace this you yeah. know so in that sense, the kind of actual lack of clarity is even more troubling in some ways because it's like a relatively vague concept. And we, what we'll see even in the book is that, you know, she talks a lot about sexual purity. She talks a lot about, um, you know, saving yourself for marriage, but there are not actually that many practical steps of what that looks like. There's no like, this is the amount of time you date. This is what you should allow. This is what you should do. I mean, maybe... Other books did that more. That does not hurt. The kind of function of this book seems more to inspire Mm. than to really help someone practically do this. So there is a book with the same name, Wait For Me, and then the subline is Rediscovering the Joy of Purity in Romance. Which I think it's, you know, I will emphasize, I think it's interesting that she really does underscore the idea of romance. Um, So that's coming through right in all of this. We keep going back to that. It's this little book, 180 some pages, not long. And it is written a couple years, like one or two years after the song is released as a kind of like further, you know, kind of um, study guide for people who are interested in this. I the way I did this is I read the book in prep for our our episode and I kind of I kind of came up with like three issues <laughs> that I that I have with the text. So I read this as a teenager, it's my teenage copy actually. Why I still have it I don't know. And the I so I've kind of formulated three critiques if you don't mind going down a little bit more of a a critical uh road. Yeah, now. absolutely. Okay. So my first beef, there does not actually seem to be that much biblical evidence in the text that are about sexual purity. Mm -hmm. So 
she has a lot of ideas about sexual purity and does a lot of work to kind of convince the reader that if you don't practice abstinence, your life will be ruined. And she bases that on the premise of a kind of Christian model of gender and sex, which would then infer that you would need textual proof, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But it's minimal. So textual proof of like God's commandments about sexual purity to me feel really stretched. And in my opinion, they're just, they often come off as like a bit of a reach. You know, Mm -hmm. she's, there's a lot of assumptions throughout the text. And this might be true in all the purity culture texts we observe, we, we talk about in this podcast, but there's a lot of assumptions about what the Bible quote meant or implied about purity. And what I feel as a sort of active, you know, kind of critical reader is that she's often imposing like pretty complex modern messages mm-hmm. about sex and sexuality onto relatively generic verses that may have had little to nothing to do with that premise. Mm-hmm. So I picked a I picked an example or two. So would you be willing to read um, example one in our little file? This is a I'm Nick is looking now at a complete short page of the text. Beneath the uh, title, uh, elegantly flourished at the top of the page, there's a section header in all caps, uh, which I'm trying not to read in a shouty voice. What would my future spouse think? And this is presuming, by the way, um, this is under her like reasons why you shouldn't have sex before marriage is that one day like your spouse is like going to be ashamed of you or you're going to have to like tell your spouse that you did X, Y and Z. The second question we must ask ourselves is this. What would my future spouse think? I spoke to a young girl in her early 20s who said she cringed every time she thought about having to tell her future spouse about what she'd done with another guy. She said she hadn't wanted to fall sexually, but she did. She also said that the reason she was no longer a virgin was because she went past her boundaries and broke her standards. She thought that the little things weren't that big of a deal. Quote, Satan will tell you there's nothing wrong with a little kiss. There's nothing wrong with touching and feeling, she said. And then he'll tell you there's nothing wrong with taking off all your clothes. At the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciple Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Luke twenty two thirty one. He wanted to sift you as well, causing you to allow first one compromise, then another to become permissible to you. If you have not clearly defined your boundaries or if you choose not to stay within your boundaries, then one thing can lead to another. Okay, so there is obviously a lot to unpack here. But what I want to concentrate on is the incorporation of scripture into her claims. Yeah. If this was your student, (laughs) how convincing is this to you? Do you walk away from this like, yes, the Bible definitely talks about this. It's funny you say if this were your student, because this right. reads like so many first year writing essays. It does. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, I mean, the cadence of the sentences, the way evidence, quote unquote, is used. I, know. I mean, it even starts with a hypothetical question. It does. It does. <laughs> I mean, this this could easily, easily have been a, a of set ours. of paragraphs lifted from when I was teaching at the, at a Bible college, it really could have been. And, you know, just keeping that teacher posture on for a moment, I would tell this student, like, 
that this is not compelling for two really strong reasons. The first is you're setting up a hypothetical, both in the what would my future spouse think and in the I spoke to someone who shall remain nameless. And by the way, she does that all the time throughout the whole book. It's I talked to this person at a concert. I talked and so many this person emailed me, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of one of those things that you're just sort of left with, like, maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't happen. Maybe it's you. I don't know. Maybe it's you. Yeah. I mean, who knows? You yeah. know, it's not. Yeah. This weird yeah. anecdotal, like I had this one interaction once mm-hmm. and therefore I have built my entire ideology off of. That's at least mm-hmm. how it feels, regardless of what how true that is. That is the argumentative approach that is set up. Yeah, sure. So once she puts words in Satan's mouth via (laughs) this character that she has created and put words in her mouth. Right. She then offers a quote from scripture. And this is sort of the second thing that I would tell the student, which is this has nothing to do with sexual purity. This has nothing to do with anything this is a a throw away line from jesus to peter about you know uh uh peter being tested as an individual in that moment there are numerous times where she brings in scripture and i feel a little bit of a whiplash like where did that come from it's not that the scripture isn't valuable in some other context or interesting in some other way, but I'm like, what in the world does this have to do with sexuality? And again, I'm bringing this up because the whole premise of this project and a purity culture in general is that there is a clear biblical kind of map for your sexuality, mm-hmm. right? And my you know, sort of concern is that this map has never actually been all that clear because we're taking like a really old text again and imposing like a really modern message. It's sort of the model, I think, of most popular Christian messaging at the time is here's a chunk of scripture from Mm -hmm. which we can draw a generalized principle And then I'm going to attach that generalized principle to the specific topic I'm discussing. But what they do is then never make any of the middle steps. Right, right. The middle steps are never transparent, ever. It's always like, here's this scripture and how it applies to what I'm talking about. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you've skipped like three or four steps in the middle. And now it just feels very weird. And it's obviously not actually saying what you want it to say, even if you can make the steps to get there. Right. You're missing them. They're dropped out of the text. I'd say even dropped out of the subtext in a lot of ways. In some ways. Yeah. And, you know, especially I think when we were kids in this culture, it was like there were also these like unspoken rules about what topics you were allowed to do this with and which ones you weren't. Right. Like. Christians, you know, of the time when I was a kid, I remember taking a lot of issue with people like cherry picking would be the phrase certain verses to support certain ideas. And yet I would see it constantly happening Mm -hmm. with other issues. And I was never entirely sure how we decided which ones were allowed and which ones weren't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That there's that weird, like canonization of the proof text as proof text. Yeah. 
which is really interesting. It's something you see and, and we don't have to get like political or anything like that, but it's something you see in a lot of anti-abortion rhetoric. Mm, yeah. The there's the texts such as like the I formed you in your mother's womb used as an argument to not abort. But then in any context, it's not about murder. It's not about that sort of thing. And then there's stuff that's more directly related to pregnancy that is looked over. Right. You know, so it's this right. weird like layering and canonization, like sub canonization, which is very fascinating. Yeah. And almost being a little unfair mm-hmm. in some ways to the scriptures. Like it's asking the scriptures to do a lot, oh. which is have an explicit opinion on complex contemporary modern phenomenon when it just doesn't have it. And maybe that just, we just need to be okay with that and like reckon with that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a longer conversation for another episode, but I, I agree with you. Like, I think that this is one example of the ways that Christian culture asks way too much of scripture. I really like that phrase. All right. Example number two. They, I mean, these are just two because this could go on and on, but this is another example for me of a moment where I was like, wait, what does this have to do with anything? We each have a desire for intimacy, for someone to know us fully and love us completely. We long to be able to share our hearts and still find acceptance. A guy longs to protect. A girl longs to be protected. And that's exactly what God created us for. When we follow his plans, there are great blessings in store. Quote, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will see me and find me when you seek me with your heart. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 12. Wow. I mean, who doesn't love some Jeremiah 29, 11? Oh, Jeremiah 29. I almost world... went into autopilot when I saw that coming <laughs> up. Oh, my God. I, I just. my eye with your eyes closed, right? Yeah. But what does this have to do with sex? Isn't it obvious, Teddy? please inform me because I'm confused. <laughs> no, I was asking if it's obvious because I don't. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, you know, and there was a great example of going back to your point of how highly gendered right. this culture is, right? Like she's kind of doing this thing where she's like, we each desire intimacy. That intimacy for a guy looks like this. And that intimacy for a girl looks like this. Mm-hmm. And God knows that. And if you follow him, he will give that intimacy to you. Right. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of essentialism going on. Yeah. Right. Like that idea that essentially a man is programmed to want to protect. And then notice the again, I'm going to be really technical here because this is how I think. But longs to be protected. I know. Like there's the active to protect and the passive to be protected. Like, right. so yep, I call it too. Yeah. a woman wants to be subject to the whims of a man. Again, it's the next layer of that. Yeah. And then the yeah. third layer I see in that gender construction is it's girl, the young diminutive of woman and guy, the ageless mm. for man. Right. Like it's not a boy and a girl or a man and a woman. It's guy and girl. Like. Yeah. On some level, maybe she's just trying to be alliterative. Sure. No, she does it all the time. She calls women girls all the time. Um, You know, but for me, this was just another example of like, it's a nice verse. 
Jeremiah 29, 11, sure. But wow, we're it, this feels like a stretch to me. Um, another example I have are, she says literally her words, quote, here are a few reasons why a Christian should not have sex before marriage. Now she's immediately opening it with why a Christian, therefore establishing that the rationale will be right based in like Christian doctrine right. would be my assumption for four reasons. One, it causes you to withdraw from God. Doesn't quote scripture there at all. Mm-hmm. It lowers your standards. Doesn't quote scripture there at all. It will affect your marriage. Definitely no scripture there. And it will cause you pain. No scripture there. So there's no scripture rationale provided for any, any of these, despite a lot of big claims about what God, quote, intended and what God designed, which, again, if you're just going to be like have a more conservative model of sexuality where you think people should have sex before marriage, whatever, that's fine. But you're basing this on Christian doctrine. So I would expect to see Christian doctrine scripture not expecting too much right? again this is that sort of logic jumping that i that i grew up with that i see all the time or saw all the time in my bible college students it's like you've got this sort of vague idea of what you think god values or what you think your culture values and so you think that should be connected to scripture so when you mm-hmm. read something that you can make the leaps between you believe that to be reinforcing your idea. Yeah. It's like confirmation by its Bible version. Right. You know, yeah. like, yeah. And you know, this is just a side note, but when she does quote scripture, she often uses the message Bible, hmm. which is that was the Bible released in the nineties. It's a paraphrase, not a translation of the scriptures. And it often relies on more like contemporary and casual language. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying this discredits her claims, but I do think that the choice to convey a really highly modern debate about sexual abstinence in such highly modern language is not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. It's I think one could argue that it makes the scriptures appear more heavily invested in a 1990s discourse than it ever actually was. Right. Yeah. For instance, she supplies a passage. She does this numerous times. She supplies a passage from First Corinthians. I'm going to put it here for you in the chat. Could you um, read this scripture from the New King James Version? It is First um, Corinthians 7, 3 through 4. This is New King James, which for those who forgot, this is like old school Bible. <laughs> right. Well, New King James, what is it? It's the... Seventies, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but even still, it's just trying to clean up the clunkiness of the King James, which is sixteen eleven. Right. right. And when we had all the other translations come out in the early two th- or in the nineties and two thousands, it was always the debate was always we need to stick to the King James, right? right? So. Yeah. For good or for whether right or completely wrong, it's the one that's sort of regarded as most accurate. Mm-hmm. I would probably say. Yeah, yeah. I'd say it's so it, yeah. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a level of authority. As a translation, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and mm-hmm. likewise also the wife unto her him. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. OK, so that's just a scripture basically saying Marriage is a sort of shared experience where no one owns his or her body, but you like own each other. Yeah. It's like shared custody, shared or joint ownership. Sure. Yeah. Or deferential ownership. Yeah. Anyway. 
Yeah, yeah. So now read it from the message. So this is the version that she supplies. So this is the message. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Same verses. Same verses. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeks to satisfy his wife and the wife seeks to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to, quote, stand up for your rights. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So, (laughs) wow. Okay, so this is the message here. That is their paraphrase of the verses you read before. Yeah. What sticks out to you here? The marriage bed must be a place of neutrality. The husband seeks to satisfy his wife and his wife seeks to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. It's interesting that this drops all of the language of ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, with the exception of that rights line at the end, which is a whole nother thing. But yeah, well, yeah, whole other thing. It it, it emphasizes pleasure and satisfaction, mm-hmm. which is something that's absent in the New King James. Yes, yes. One might say it has more modern language that is more directing your attention to sex, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not saying that that first one wasn't about sexual intimacy, but the phrase affection, giving affection likewise, likewise under her, you know, the phrase is marriage bed, satisfying. um, Mm -hmm. And then that little line at the end, which totally then just opens up like a big cultural debate about women's rights and all of that, you know, so I don't want to go on and on about this, but I think it encapsulates what I think she often, I'm going to say deliberately, you know, she deliberately chooses translations and paraphrases of scriptures and certain texts that or certain certain passages that I think make it seem as though the scriptures are like more invested again in a topic that there is potentially it's not that they the scriptures were against it or didn't agree with her or did agree with her they just didn't talk about it because the discourse didn't exist right you know a lot of um i i've read a bit actually about the message and uh peterson's like logic behind the paraphrase and it's interesting and i think would even be on some level noble that like his goal is to catch the spirit rather than the letter of what's going on um but it feels to me a lot like if I can put this in in teacher language, a student trying to build a nuanced argument off of Wikipedia. Mm. It's not that the information is inherently wrong because you get it from Wikipedia, but it's that the it's that the information is inherently incomplete and m- coded for ease of access rather than accuracy. This first point, again, was simply that I see Wait For Me as positioning itself as a text that is going to advocate for sexual purity on the basis of Christian doctrine. But I find that the scriptural proof she supplies is either like a reach or or sometimes just completely not convincing at all. And I will say that, you know, I think one of the biggest things I've learned over the years while deconstructing my faith and experiences in the church is that much of the teaching of the church is actually not biblical. It's not that it's anti-biblical. Um, it's putting forth certain ideas about scriptures that simply aren't there or, or mm-hmm. don't hold up. And learning that there, for me anyway, learning that there was a difference between the kind of teachings of the ter- church and the teachings of of 
or I'm sorry, teachings of scripture and teachings of Christian culture was really impactful and kind of liberating for me, mm-hmm. especially in my early years of leaving, because I mean, I'm not sure it matters much to me anymore, to be honest. But at the time, it was a really important revelation in that. And I almost wish I could have learned it sooner because it would have made me feel a little bit less tormented mm-hmm. by certain things. If I would have been given the opportunity to lean in a bit more to the ambiguity of the scriptures don't explicitly talk about this, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, the scriptures don't explicitly have necessarily a view on, on X, Y, and Z issues. So let's, let's talk together and, and, and sort of argue together and, and brainstorm and, you know, all those things would have been, would have made my faith journey much easier. Um, I think than if things were just presented in so such black and white ways. Yeah, that it, that tracks with my deconstructing journey as well. Was that like the the first people who really influenced my stepping away from insular church culture were the ones that said like, you know, the, the Bible's ambiguous here. The Bible doesn't actually apply to you the way you think it does. So let's mm-hmm. look for trajectories and movements and let's be explicit about what we're doing here because your systematic theology that you're handing out is just you setting up a system of interpretation and applying it to scripture and seeing how it all shakes out. It's not the other way around. And those right. are some of the people that I can still like have respect for at this stage of my journey is those people who say, hey, you know, it's not, you know, it's not as black and white like you said. And I can understand on some level, like why they don't want to go there because it opens up lots of questions. It opens, you know, it opens up a lot of things that they don't want, but man, running from it also is not the answer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, um, okay. So that's my first beef. Number two, the dangers of sex outside of marriage, I feel in wait for me are kind of wildly overstated and over-exaggerated. And this is not just Rebecca St. James, you know, this is sort of purity culture at large, but man. So I think the most egregious part actually of wait for me is a chapter called quote, the ecstasy and agony of sex. There's your binary for the day. (laughs) I have two immediate thoughts just at that title. The first is either no you're, it's not about bdsm right <laughs> yeah that, that that was the, yeah like all right we're, you're you're i mean if you're not into pain and bondage like you have to tell people like yes yes these are things we need to be clear about yes yeah yeah and the other thing is you're either not into bdsm and you're not telling people or uh you're having sex with people who are very bad at it yeah, agony, man. I mean, that's not even a word I really use because there's not many things I would describe as agony, but wow. Okay. So uh, this is kind of purity culture at its worst and probably what most of us are thinking about when we think about the dangers of this philosophy. Right. So basically this chapter insists that sex before marriage, because it is a sin, will do what all sin does which is lead kind of yields um, emotional, spiritual, and physical devastation. And Rebecca St. James is not exaggerating when she continually uses the word agony um, to describe sex before marriage. So could you read example number three? Um, Note that this is a kind of compilation of numerous paragraphs I'm stringing together from that chapter because it would have been too long otherwise. Sure. Let's have it all at once. Let's just get through it. 
let's just get through it close your eyes (laughs) yeah this is like you said it's a compilation so these are broken up i will just like signal with a brief pause uh when we're moving from one excerpt to the next yes and you know just so it's understandable so you um it unfolds over the course of about three pages so it's not wild like separate it's just that i cut out some stuff sure yeah we hear from our society do what you want unless it hurts someone else that way of thinking is completely flawed. If you sin, you will always hurt someone. It could be you, your family, your friends, your future spouse, and even your future children. Even the children. Always the children. More than 50 million Americans have STDs. That's not a skip, by the way. That's just the <laughs> next sentence. No, that's not a skip. That's not like a skip. She says, even your future children. More yep. than 50 million Americans have STDs. Many teens believe that a condom will protect them. The truth that is having sex with condoms is playing with fire. Condoms fail one out of every six times. Dot, dot, dot. Don't buy the lie of safe sex that society feeds you. I don't know about that one in six times. That, I mean, like citation needed. Yeah, I don't know. So that's the first excerpt. One of my good friends told there it is again. One of my good friends told me about a friend of hers who had an STD. The emotion, yeah, like that's what is it? Tertiary? A friend told me about a friend. (laughs) I have a friend who has a friend who has this friend who has an STD. Yeah. The emotional and physical pain she suffers is such a high cost. She doesn't enjoy sex now with her husband because of the pain. Are you willing to risk a lifetime of good health for a few moments of pleasure? (laughs) Next excerpt. Another obvious consequence is that you might get pregnant. Every day, 2,700 teens get pregnant. Next excerpt. The emotional pain of losing your virginity, getting AIDS, contracting an STD, conceiving a baby, aborting that baby, or destroying your reputation or someone else's can lead to severe hopeless depression and even suicide. Satan will whisper, it's over. There's no hope. Over and over again, I have people who attend my concerts come and tell me later that they have tried to commit suicide. More often than not, their despair stems from stems from the extreme feelings of rejection and guilt after giving themselves outside of marriage. Over and over again, I had people come to me at my conference telling me they tried to commit suicide. Rebecca, is that... Maybe. I mean, okay. to say? Maybe. I don't Fine. Know. Maybe. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt on the. It might have been six people. You know, yeah. I, I, I like, don't know. Hey, listen, if she has 10 concerts and at six of them, somebody tells her that, that feels like over and over again. Sure. I think this is the thing that strikes me most notably in that last section is that line of despair and depression that leads from rejection and guilt. It reminds me of the anti-trans argument that says if we let trans people use women's bathrooms, then uh, uh, women will be sexually assaulted because straight people will disguise themselves as trans people to take advantage of women. You're not worried about trans people. You're worried about predatory straight people. And the thing that strikes me about point after point of this is you're not worried about people having sex outside of marriage. You're worried about your oppressive culture, shaming them and guilting them to suicide. 
Yes. Yes. I would go as so far to say, you know, I wrote in the margins like patriarchy, like (laughs) Is this what you're upset about? You know, that name of the guy pointing to the butterfly. Is this depression (laughs) or is this patriarchy? Patriarchy, you know, and to be fair, like teen pregnancy rates were relatively were higher at this point than they are now. I'm going to assume also STIs. But the language here is just so to again, I mean, to me, it feels so overstated, you know, that. Well, this is right. This is you said a few years after. So what? Oh, three. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Right. So this is yeah. like right on the edge of the AIDS crisis, right? Mm-hmm. On my timeline, well, and that's a little fuzzy. Yeah, no, I mean, 1980s would have been the AIDS okay. crisis, but we're still living with the residue of that for sure. Right. It's still you know? dominant so, in the imagination, especially if she started working popularly in the 80s. Like this is still something dominant. OK, yeah. Right. And how getting HIV in the 90s probably felt very different to us than than it would say getting HIV now, Mm -hmm. not to just, you know, not to say that that is something that's like casual now or anything. But like there was still way more. I think it was still way more stigmatized for me. It just was so radical. You know, this idea she's setting up these these ridiculous scenarios in some ways where it's like. I have this collection of people I know who have told me they've tried to kill themselves because they've had sex. To be fair, she even says more often than not, their despair stems um, outside of marriage. So it also could be a bunch of other things. And then, you know, she's also like, oh, you could also get pregnant. You might also have an abortion. Oh, and get AIDS. Oh, and ruin someone's reputation, which I don't know where that Mm. all fits. There's nothing wrong with being honest with you know, young people about the consequences of sex. But this to me just reeks of like purity cultures, like sin of exaggeration, of kind of misinformation, mm-hmm. of scare tactics. And again, it's not just Rebecca St. James. Everybody was doing this, but it's troubling. And, you know, the point, the problem with purity culture, too, has never been that they're wrong about people getting STDs Mm -hmm. or they're wrong about teen pregnancy. It's always been that the conversation shuts down other discussions that could actually prevent those things from happening. Right. Which is like, okay, so if condoms are failing, what are people doing wrong? (laughs) Um, What are more safe options? Do people understand what does and does not prevent STIs? That's just a critique of purity culture broadly, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, and one might even say that some of these numbers were so high during this time because those other conversations were on such rigid lockdown. Right. There's this really interesting piece. I forgot where I read this, but that post like purity culture and abstinence boom, numbers for STDs and STIs, teen pregnancy, all that stuff dipped. Mm-hmm. And there's this sort of two contrary lines of thinking one from the conservative evangelical christian culture side which is hey we fought for abstinence and that's what we got and then the other narrative is yeah that's when we started teaching safe sex and like use of of these contraceptives and such right those are sort of the two lines of, of contrary narratives i will also say that like this is the the standard playbook for church culture. Take mm-hmm. any single action and extrapolate cosmic or eternal or continuing consequences in order to invoke fear and shame to prevent mm-hmm. the action. 
regardless of the efficacy. Right. And they do it for it's so much more than just with sex. They do it with so many mm-hmm. things. Right? You do it that, with the salvation yeah. message. You do it with abortion. You do it with, you know, voting even like there's all sorts yeah. of things that it gets. It gets extrapolated. Listening to music, you shouldn't. I mean, the consequences are always so dire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think one of the things as I came out of the church, you know, that really was, was evident to me was like that a lot of the things the church put a lot of weight on were actually pretty inconsequential on like a daily right. lived experience. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So that's my, that was my second point. And then the third, I think number two and three actually kind of overlap. My third, you know, critique was that sexual purity, and you already referenced this, but sexual purity, at least in the rhetoric and discourse of the time, placed heavy emphasis on women's bodies and modesty in a way that I would argue is relatively damaging. Yeah, I I would I would take that statement a little farther than you, and I'm not even a woman here. So, yeah. Read example four to just to add fuel to your fire. Okay, Great. I'm not (laughs) angry enough today. (laughs) Okay. Example four, Uh, it starts with a paragraph beginning with a all cap sentence, be smart. Be smart. A guy wrote to me and said, here we are again. Mm -hmm. Same formula. A guy wrote to me and said, quote, the idea of waiting until marriage for sex is wonderful, but one has to also consider the complete devastation that can come if something unexpected happens. End quote. He was referring to rape. Whoa. Uh, I know. That, that was laugh, me. Like that whoa, by the way. That was, that was just an intense <laughs> kind her. of... Not Whoa. <laughs> Calling rape something unexpected is a lot. Uh, back to St. James. Even though his approach was quite negative in thought, his message and subsequent warning is very important. I have heard stories of girls whose lives ended up being ravaged by rape just by taking a walk across the park alone at night. All it takes is a few minutes in the wrong place at the wrong time, and your whole life could be damaged forever. There's more. I'm going to keep reading, but I, I cannot just move past that. Like I'm physically incapable of, man, all it takes is for you to be in the wrong place, yeah. and you've done something wrong as the victim of rape. Mm -hmm. oh my god um continuing and is this is this young teddy's underlining or is this yours (laughs) i recognize the pen i think it's recent (laughs) okay we can't completely guarantee that our virginity will not be taken this word is a boxed off from us but we can by that i was trying to imply do you mean rape right you know yeah yeah we can be commit uh can commit to being quote shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves walking alone at night is never a good idea in today's fallen world a class in self-defense is wise girls be careful not to be in a closed room with a guy you do not know well even walking during the day in unpopulated places can be dangerous and guys you're not completely immune from the problem of rape either First, Peter 5.8 says, be careful. Watch out for attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The old adage, better safe than sorry, has never been more relevant. I'm going to use 
hour one obscenity for this. What the fuck, Rebecca? Yeah. (laughs) Rebecca, what are you doing? (laughs) I like, again, I think you understated the fact like I I was really trying to be. Yeah. Yeah. None of this language is appropriate on any valence like taken from you. Like, again, you mean rape? Like, and and what is her response to that? Guys, you might be tempted to sexually assault someone, but, you know, Mm -hmm. that's probably a bad idea. Women, don't walk anywhere. And I want to underline this, even where there aren't people. I know. (laughs) He says walking during the day in unpopulated places. So that means walking somewhere where people aren't. You still could be raped. That's why she had a driver, Nick. That's why that's where the driver was from. <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but in cap, this encapsulates such a troubling narrative, you yeah. know, about sexual violence, right? Which is which the church and purity culture were really responsible for kind of putting out there, which is that women are responsible for the violence inflicted upon them. And that they could do, you know, that there are steps you can take to prevent it. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't take those steps, you know, it's sort of on you. Um, And this also goes back to the the point we made before, which is that, like, are you actually talking about making the wrong choice to walk in the daytime? Or is the fish you actually want to fry patriarchy and gender violence, you know? Because I'm assuming that the men being raped are being raped by men. You well, know, I don't this. even think yeah. she's not even considering the idea of of men being raped by other men. She's not even really talking about that. She says you're not immune from the problem. And then the warning that she gives is temptation. Oh, so we read that differently. Yeah, no, I read that as you are possibly go. You are going to be tempted. And you had better be careful to guard yourself. Oh, watch out for attacks from the devil. He, pro- I see. Okay. I took that as like, there's always a chance as a man, you could be raped, which I was like, well, that's kind of nice. Nice that she, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Nice yeah. that she mentioned it, you know? I'm sure there's probably a bit of both. But I think you're right. I I think you're right, though, because, I mean, you know, her use of scripture in this book is not great, but the scripture would seem to support more yours than my interpretation. And, and she doesn't call it from being raped or from falling into or having your virginity taken. She says immune from the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And I was trying also to kind of unpack like the letter from the guy which was kind of weird, like assuming this actually happened. One has to consider the complete devastation that can come if something unexpected happens. You know, I wasn't sure how to read that. Is this is this guy like is this has this poor guy been like sexually assaulted? I don't you know. And then her and then her description of it is super weird. She's like, even though his approach is negative in thought, Mm -hmm. what does that even mean is negative in thought? Okay, hear me out. I'm writing a long backstory for this guy. Okay. (laughs) But I can imagine either a father or a husband Uh, or a victim of rape. Yeah. Who is reading her messaging 
and the purity culture messaging that's like, as we've said, so consistent throughout Christian culture and writes her a letter of, hey, listen, you've got to understand that like, maybe this guy is like trying to process what happened to him or someone he loves. Someone he loves. Yeah, that could be. And is saying, you've got to like, back off on your messaging a little bit you're doing harm by not taking this into consideration and giving her like a finger wagging mm. and she's like well he was really negative so i'm gonna consider what he said but moving on that's how i re- now i know that's reading quite callously for rebecca i i understand that and i've been trying to give her the benefit of the doubt but i i cannot move past how much this is problematic being someone who's experienced a level of sexual assault from men Mm. this completely misrepresents the masculine role in rape Mm. there is just blame all around and it is as though you are robbed rather than violated as though you were supposed to protect something and failed to keep it rather than were harmed, were attacked. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's perfectly said. And honestly, you know, as a woman who grew up in this environment, and now I'm doing anecdotal evidence, but, you know, she did it. So I'm doing it. You know, the number of conversations I have had with my women friends about, you know, them feeling that different experiences they've had were sort of um, that purity culture sort of blamed them for Mm. is really astronomical. It's really crazy. You know, I think back to so many different experiences that, you know, friends and, and acquaintances and church girls I grew up with had and the way they were dealt with, the language that was used to describe them, the lack of action taken against predators, the purity culture has in this regard like a lot of sins to Mm -hmm. to reckon with i think absolutely i know you said not to read the last paragraph because it's it's incomplete but the first (laughs) sentence of the next paragraph is and i'm going to quote this directly straight through if you were the victim of rape or molestation be assured Mm -hmm. that god still honors your commitment to remain pure i I can't express how angry that makes me. I'm really trying to stay measured when I say this. Credit where credit's due, she says victim and doesn't give into what she had been saying before, like the taken language. It's not that God still loves you. It's not God sees this injustice done to you. It's the first reassurance that she needs, feels needs to be given is that God honors the commitment for purity. Don't worry, you're still pure in God's eyes. I've, I've heard that phrase so many times. Yeah. And not God sees the pain. God sees the violation, the injustice, the right. violence that was done to you. It's don't worry. God doesn't think you're worthless anymore. Like other people might be telling you, because you know, that's the subtext. The subtext Mm -hmm. is you're going to feel worthless because this thing was done to you, but don't worry. (laughs) And and they feel worthless 
because they have been told that something has been taken from them that they were saving for. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that rape and sexual assaults are, you know, utterly terrible, terrible things. And they're made worse by a culture that has now also just told you your whole life that the most precious thing you have to give mm-hmm. you have been robbed of. Does that make sense? Right. You've been robbed of the thing that belonged to someone else that you were holding on to. That you can no longer give now. And that's why we have to do all this backpedaling and be like, but this doesn't count when it's violence. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and in some ways it's like, why do we have to have this conversation at all? Someone has just experienced one of the greatest violations anyone can experience, you know, and this is the conversation we're having. Like, mm-hmm. I understand that those kinds of things could fit into a larger discussion of like, so what does your sexuality mean to you now that you're a victim, now that you've experienced mm-hmm. this, you know, how can you reclaim, find joy, pleasure, all those things? You know, those are parts of conversations yeah. that victims have to have. But the way this is like packaged is just, it's not it, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it's not it. This kind of goes to a larger pattern that I think will be a conversation in many future episodes for us, many future discussions with us. But it's a trend or a pattern in Christian ideology that hyper fixates on a specific mode or a specific approach to something they've deemed an issue. And rather than when they come up against an inconsistency or a problem with that line of thinking, rather than say, oh, that means we need to adjust our initial approach. They need to backdoor a fix or an exception or a way of assimilating the inconsistency. You see mm-hmm. it in a lot of different and a lot of different places. This is perhaps the most egregious, but you see it in a lot of ways. So um those were my three things, you know, about th- that stuck out to me as as big problems with the text. Now reading it as a 30 something year old woman, no longer in purity culture. And I think in closing, I, I want to emphasize that, again, you, you can't overemphasize how important it was that Rebecca St. James take what on sexual purity was unique because she was this was her story. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what sold really, really well was that. She wasn't just preaching about sexual purity. She was kind of living it out year after year for us. And this this went on over the course of a decade. She didn't get married for another 10 years until um, after wait for me. So she really waited. (laughs) She was a single woman herself. She was open about the fact that she hadn't yet had sex, that she desired sex, but that she was waiting for it with her future husband. And unlike other purity, you know, spokespeople, spokespeople of the time who were already married, you know, the Christian world got to sort of experience her waiting with her. Mm-hmm. And it, it was for a kind of a lack of better words, a sort of godly romance that we could all consume right. with her. You know, she she kind of marketed and commodified her own virginity. I, I put I I don't she did. I don't know what to say. I mean, did it, I, conceptually, you know, I, I think that's. um something that we see in a lot of popular Christian writing 
at the time. And, and I think the industry has recognized that it's a winning pattern mm-hmm. and done this sort of pseudo theology or pseudo doctrine. Like I would probably call it pop doctrine just to be clever. Yeah, like fair. it's pop doctrine told through memory. Right. And so what you're doing is ultimately marketing your story, but using that story to um, sell a worldview or a perspective more Mm -hmm. so than, you know, like any normal quote unquote memoir, which is just like, here's my story and my perspective on the world. These were all done under the guise of like, hey, I can't say this is absolute truth. So I'm going to tell you that this is my take on absolute truths. So it's this yeah. weird, like, you know, while Christians will rail against postmodernism and relativism, they'll like embrace it because it lets them get around, like saying you have to be this way. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And that's a gr- that's a great point is that wait for me is not a book, a song, whatever it, about doctrine about theology it's not an argument per se about theology on the surface it's just a narrative mm-hmm. one person's story there's nothing wrong with someone saying they want to wait to have sex before they're married you yeah. know you do whatever you. who cares i don't care but it's being like you said it's different from other memoir another personal narrative in that it is a vehicle through which they could communicate like a kind of worldview mm-hmm. and what Christian girl of the 90s wouldn't look at Rebecca St. James and be like, I want to be like her. Right. I mean, she's, you know, she's seems beautiful and successful and confident and glow and all the thing, you know, so you can see why it happened. How Um, long was she when she wrote this? Do you know? I think she was 20. Interesting, because that's the same as uh, Harris with his book. Yeah, they were right around the same age. Yeah. And they they like I said, they co they did a few events. Yeah. Yeah. Together. I think that my biggest takeaway here is again, you know, that there is a difference between the individual and the culture. There's nothing wrong with the choice. There's nothing inherently wrong about the choice that Rebecca St. James made for herself. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't take any issues with individuals choosing that. I don't really care to be honest at all, but I do take major qualms with, with the culture because it was, you know, full of unqualified educators um, relied heavily on misinformation, primarily used guilt and scare tactics, and primarily made women shoulder the burden, you know, of, of everyone's purity. What's your sort of takeaway, you think? I really agree and, and like the way that you framed that. Um, I think that part of what Christian culture, and again, I want to distinguish, like you said, Christian culture from the individual. I don't care if this is the way you want to live your life. It's fine. Go for it. But what Christian culture kind of did was they took these models and said, this is the ideal and you need to hold up to it. I I remember being part of a conference where the pastor spoke to all, you know, all the women went in one room and all the men went in the other room. Always so many, all those separated conferences. Like, what were we talking about that? Like, and it was ostensibly supposed to be a multiple day conference about sexuality. He told this story about how he claimed to have never looked at porn, to never had sex with a woman, to never kiss anybody. 
and then he got married 21 to <laughs> his wife and he said i remember this very vividly with tears in his eyes up on the stage that the first person he saw naked other than himself was his wife and it was this big thing about how you know i can virginity and so can you and one session was about pornography one session was about masturbation as a separate issue and then the third section was about resisting the temptation and so Mm -hmm. all of these sessions were framed for men as just not not doing a thing whereas my conversations with all the the my my women friends at the time all of their sessions were about um protecting staying safe putting up boundaries And their model was this man's wife who, oh no, <laughs> you know, talked about defending her chastity. And if I remember correctly, like her dealing with a near sexual assault. Mm. And again, it's taking these sort of models and then commodifying the model again. Like, great. Good for you that you felt that was a valuable thing for you and you achieved mm-hmm. that thing. I'm. I am happy that you found something you wanted out of life and achieved it. And that it worked out for you because it doesn't work out that way for everybody. Right. And while you might backdoor the shame, like trying to counteract the shame, you're doing it. You, You are perpetuating the shame by saying that this is the only acceptable model by putting these cosmic eternal consequences on something that we are biologically coded to desire in a way that we cannot control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good. That great summary. And for those of you who are wondering, since she sort of, uh, you know, lured us in here, right. Um, Rebecca St. James, obviously, for those 10 years where she was, quote, waiting, was kind of highly watched and and celebrated by Christian culture, making it so that when she finally did meet someone, it was a really big deal. If you like Google Rebecca St. James engagement, Rebecca St. James wedding, I mean, there's tons of stuff. There's photographs and interviews. And, you know, it's very much presented as like our golden girl finally found her person, you know. And I don't know, it's been a while since I've been in the CCM, you know, kind of culture. So maybe all marriages are celebrated to some degree. I don't really remember, but it was a big, I mean, I remember when Rebecca St. James got engaged, Mm -hmm. you know, there was snow, you know, (laughs) so (laughs) it was like Christmas Eve or something really romantic. So again, she gave the culture her story of virginity. And we, you know, the culture sort of followed along um, until the very present. I think maybe to close, I will um, say that uh, when she finally did get married, um, following the ceremony and prior to departing on her honeymoon at a, quote, undisclosed location, according to CCM Magazine, I would hope it would be undisclosed. Rebecca took the time to post a note on Facebook to share with her large universe of fans. And she wrote, today, as in her wedding day, has been a very special day for which I have waited a very, very long time. 
Well, thank you so much for exploring this topic with us uh, today. If you would like to continue exploring this, uh, please leave us a review. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We'd love to have you with us on all of our weird journeys. Thank you. Thank you. Happy for you, Rebecca. (laughs) I hope. I hope he's decent in bed. Well, it's been 20 years in there together. So, or no, wait, math, wait, 2011, 12 years. Is that 12 years? Yeah. Glad that your waiting is over. Yes. We're all finished. <laughs> we can stop waiting with you. <laughs> it was a 